Back when we started the podcast, we did a fair amount of research into the 19th century and the early era just to see what's out there. And we really wanted to capture a broad global net when we did our story selection. So you might be wondering, where are all the stories from Japan? And we initially covered a medieval era folklore tale as an early example of time travel, but we haven't covered any, I guess, serious science fiction from Japan until now, and we'll likely not do so in the foreseeable future for the very frustrating reason that it seems like almost nothing from this era is translated into English. The book that we consulted for some background on Japanese science fiction is Japanese Science Fiction, A View of a Changing Society by Robert Matthew, which primarily focuses on science fiction from the 1950s onwards, but it does provide a very good overview of the early stuff and appears to still be the definitive text in the English language on early Japanese science fiction, which is unfortunate, I think, that it's received so little attention, because there does seem to be a fair amount out there, and some interesting-sounding titles, too. It is strange, given all the fascination with Japanese culture yeah. that we're in right now, with, with that's happened for a while, actually. Yeah, definitely. That's in pop culture and so on, anyway. This was the only novel that we were able to find translated into English from the early days. It was published in 1900, and I was able to find some stuff that might be translated from the 1920s, but as far as pre-1920s, this seems to be the only one that we are able to find in English. So just some background on what was going on in Japan at the time, and some other science fiction stories from Japan, since unfortunately we won't be able to cover any of them. After the Imperial Restoration in 1868, Japan modernized very rapidly, and around this time, Western literature was very popular in Japan, including the works of Jules Verne. The first Verne translation into Japanese was Around the World in 80 Days, that appeared in 1878, and several followed in the 1880s, including 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and From the Earth to the Moon. So, in addition to the adventure novels that would follow in the wake of Jules Verne being popular, such as Yano Ryuki's Tales of Ukashiro in 1890, there were also a number of political novels inspired by the likes of Bulwer-Lytton and Disraeli, such as Ushiyama Ryosuke, The Future of Japan in 1884, and Suihiro Tetsuo's A Future Record of the Year 1890, published in 1886, as well as a political novel, Plum Blossom in the Snow from same year, and its 1888-1889 sequel, A Political Novel, a Nightingale Among the Flowers, both of which deal with future speculation in the year 2040. Themes of militarism and imperialism were becoming much more prominent in the literature around the turn of the century. This is where the Undersea Worship series comes from, as well as Harada Masiman's The Bitter Future Ten-Year War Between Japan and Russia, as well as his novel The Next War. These kind of militaristic stories go a bit out of vogue in the 1910s when naturalist writing becomes more of a dominant trend. But in 1920, the magazine New Youth appears, publishing science fiction type stories, and a number of magazines followed, especially after 1926. Through the years between 1926 and the start of World War II, 
in the 1930s, imperialism was very much on the rise, and these kind of earlier nationalistic stories become in vogue again. And after the war, Japanese culture in general is completely transformed, and really most of the modern science fiction from Japan begins after the war. And I think that's true of pretty much every other country in the world. The war just seems like a profound effect on every society and how we view the world that I don't think it's a coincidence that the golden age really overlaps with the period that the, the war is going on and ends. And things changed a lot after, after the war period, like the lot more different things cut and started coming in, started to see a little bit more cynical kind of modern works Right, I think so. Yeah, yeah. Not to say they didn't exist before then, but it just seemed like the majority of people woke up feeling a little bit. Yeah, and it is hard for me to consider much pre-war stuff. Uh, pretty much anything we've done on the podcast as modern science fiction. I mean, this is clearly very much early proto-science fiction in a lot of cases. Yeah. Th- this episode is maybe, or at least these first two stories that, that doyle a little less on the more general speculative nature of just changing one small thing about an existing technology and bringing out a little bit further yeah. rather than cr- crazy... There was definitely not a lot of science in this, but I thought no. there was enough. There was enough in the Vern, like... Even though it wasn't, oh, future highly advanced technology or anything. There was just so much focus on the biology. Yeah, exactly. That it made it, I think, a work of science, like literal science fiction. Yeah, right. right, So that is a perfectly acceptable definition for the genre as well. So to me, Vern fits more than this guy. Right. I mean, this is definitely cut in the adventure vein. And it's a juvenile novel series, so it is written for a much younger audience. So a lot of maybe the more naturalistic, science-y things that appeared in Averne wouldn't exactly yeah. appear here, and certainly don't in this first volume. So let's talk about this author and this novel that we read for this time. So this was written by Oshikawa Shunro, which is a pseudonym of Masaari Oshikawa, who lived from 1876 to 1914. He was a son of a Christian minister, and along with his brother had quite the interest in baseball. His brother in particular was instrumental in the early development and popularity of baseball in Japan altogether. In 1900, Shunro wrote the first in a series of six novels in the Undersea Warship series. This one that we read, the first one, A Fantastic Tale of Island Adventure, is again, Unfortunately, the only one of these translated in English. It appears that the other five have not yet been translated to English. I do wonder if the others are any better. Yeah, so I guess we'll see how this unfolds. But We'll see um, how this unfolds. Yeah, right. I may as well just say right now, I don't like this very much. Yeah, it's very silly. Yeah. And I, I thought this was fun, but it's definitely very silly, and I don't think it could be really considered a good novel but it has its moments and well i i really have no idea where the series goes in the next five volumes presumably the undersea warship gets in adventures and things like that but yeah i didn't end up watching any of the movies i'm afraid like yeah so i did watch atragon and we'll get to that later but yeah it's, it's interesting where that takes it 
in the early 1900s, Shunro became employed by the magazine Graphic Pictorial as a war reporter, which at the time was largely dealing with the Russo-Japanese War. And in 1907, he became employed at the magazine World of Adventure as an author, where he, around this time, wrote a number of other adventure stories. There's an Antarctic Lost World novel called A Strange Incident at the South Pole from 1905, The Golden Bracelet from 1907, the Race to Explore the Moon from 1907. And in 1911, he founded the World of Heroism magazine, which he edited until his death, containing both fiction and nonfiction. Unfortunately, like Japanese science fiction, there is not a lot of good English language biographical materials on him. So a lot of this is from the science fiction encyclopedia, where they did get in this one cutting remark saying, quote, Oshikawa is rightly remembered alongside Juza Uno as one of the fathers of Japanese science fiction, although few readers, even in Japan, are familiar with his original turgid prose. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. But in the decades after his death in 1914, the undersea warship novels experienced a resurgence of popularity in Japan as nationalist sentiment grew before the war. And this novel is indeed a very, very nationalistic novel from start to finish. So getting into the novel itself, published in 1900, it opens up with a preface saying, quote, A man who appears to be a citizen of Japan is not expected to be on a ship idly floating on the waves of the Pacific Ocean when he should be enraptured only by the captivating sight of Mount Fuji. Yeah. Having said all that, though, there is an awful lot of observation of European culture in the beginning of this book there that is. I thought was really interesting. Yeah. So the novel itself opens up with the narrator leaving Japan to travel the world, first landing in America and then spending a great deal of time in Europe for a voyage lasting six years in total. He's set to return to Japan, and there's some really interesting commentary, I think, on being alone in a strange world. The narrator hasn't encountered any other Japanese people in his travels over the six years, so he feels very much like a foreigner in every sense of the word. Nobody can speak and understand his language, and the cultures are totally different from what he's used to at home. And he muses on his friend Hamajima Takabumi, who had also traveled extensively and has heard he ended up in Naples. So he decides to look him up there. And he's indeed still in Naples, so the narrator meets up with him to quell his loneliness. Yanagawa, the name of the narrator, learns that Takabumi's wife and son are also returning to Japan by the same ship, the Crescent Moon, that he's scheduled to take. Takabumi says that he would like to see his son become, if possible, a, quote, Navy man capable of defending the Empire of Japan. I feel deeply that if a Japanese child is not raised in the country of Japan, his love of country will be weak. And he wants his son to yeah. have a military career and ask Yanagawa to watch over them on the return voyage. So we actually talked about that last time in Roger Kipling living in India. Yeah, <laughs> right. Pretty much exactly what happened. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> and for all of Kipling's big notions of empire and power in the... ABC stories. This one is very much straightforward with its purpose of Japanese flag-waving imperialism throughout the entire course of the novel, really. Sure. His wife, Haraway, is the sister of a Navy captain, and she's noble and beautiful, and they have a small son, Hideo, 
and he's extremely excited to see someone else is Japanese and to go back to Japan. Yeah, he'd be a really annoying kid if, if yeah. in the movie. <laughs> yeah, like, right. I don't know if the movie really covers this part no, of the story. No, it doesn't. I'm yeah, guessing uh, not. No, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into the movie at the end. But Hamajima is quite stoic, and Haraway seems rather emotional, as is Annie, Hideo's Italian nanny who ask Yanagawa to postpone the trip because they are traveling on an unlucky day. And she says, tonight at 1130 is especially frightening. It's the devil's hour. It's the devil's hour on the devil's day. Yeah, right, exactly. So it's the name of the chapter, and it's yeah. said over and over again. <laughs> it's the, day, <laughs> the hour of the devil on the devil's day. Yeah, so uh, Yanagawa dismisses this as just silly superstition, and Annie feels like she's being mocked. As Yanagawa goes to board the ship, Hamajima is very insistent that Yanagawa protect them, and he swears on his life that he will. As they are departing, the connection for a masthead light snaps and crashes into the bridge, and an English nobleman shouts that the voyage is cursed, and Yanagawa is surprised at all this European superstition in the air, though Haraway does seem a bit concerned. They see a steamship approaching, and Yanagawa goes to look at it through binoculars and sees a man looking back at him through binoculars. The legend of an unknown pirate island to the east of Madagascar comes to mind, and he starts speculating if that ship is one of those mystery pirate ships, and just kind of muses aloud if something is wrong. And he says to himself, no, it's nothing. And the boat whistles, blows, and they depart. So, famous last words. As they get off the coast, Yanagawa bids Haraway and Hideo goodnight, but he can't sleep and feels oppressed by some kind of evil air. He finds a Japanese newspaper on board and begins reading, and reads an article on the disappearance of Navy Captain Sakuragi. His disappearance seems to be wrapped up in secrecy, and odd sightings of a ship resembling his have been reported. Yanagawa had previously met him and began musing on the powers of the nations. He gave him a random, modern, ultra-modernist, patriotic poem. Yeah, right. And even the narrator of the book thought it was a little strange. Yeah. <laughs> See, at this point, I really, I really thought the book was going to be more intellectual than it is. Yeah, right. Because it, of stuff like this. It, it, it's yeah, it, very. Like he strange. makes this weird comment on modern poetry, and he's like, "Huh." So that's what they come up with. Yeah, like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It, I tried to look up other works the translator of this had done, and I didn't really have much luck. This mm. seemed like it was from uh, independent press. So, I don't know, it just it seems to me very strange that so little Japanese stuff from this time has been translated, so I'm not exactly sure if there's also translation issues with this one, like Vern initially. There's certainly a big language barrier between uh, the English and Japanese. The language is way too modern for something written in yeah. 1900. Yeah. Like, at what point somebody even calls somebody a poser? Like, yeah, right. Uh, that, that was a very odd <laughs> line. So I, I don't know where that one came from. But... We get a quote from the missing captain that Japan is a rising nation at the East and basically needs to prove itself as a real power to maintain the dignity of the nation. So while Yanagawa was thinking about this and his poetry, he falls asleep and muses on the captain's whereabouts, his purpose, and so on and so forth. And he wakes up the next morning having overslept, but Hideo slept fine. Harui is a bit restless, and her mood improves, though, with the beautiful sights that they see in the ocean. The Crescent Moon has 700 people on it, but the three of them are the only Japanese people. They largely have a good voyage to Socotra. There's only a few incidents. There's a suicide off the coast of Messina, and a Chinese passenger died of illness. 
I guess it was more common in those days for more than two people to die on board. It seems like two people dying and then that sort of a spirit. It seems like it would be a big deal, but... I yeah, I, I guess not. They have quite a bit of entertainment on board, dances, concerts, and so on, with the English, French, and Germans who are all performing songs in their native language, and suddenly they're put on the spot to perform. And Yanaga was rather flustered, and the German ladies being rather rude about it. Haraway, however, yeah. excels at the piano, and her singing is gorgeous, and she just completely captivates the audience. Um, the ship is so large, and they have a race on board. Yanagawa gets third place, and he's also really good at sumo and martial arts and is able to best the number of people on board. But a American boxing champion's on board, and he loses in a fight with him, being unfamiliar with the sport and gets quite beat up. A uh, circus tiger gets loose, which I thought was yeah. pretty <laughs> pretty odd thing. But one night in the Indian Ocean, as Yanagawa is going to sleep, he hears something like explosions over the water, sees intense lights, and thinks a ship that's in distress. And he alerts the captain directly, ignoring the common protocol of not interfering with the sailor's duty. And the captain just laughs him off and dismisses his concerns. And Yanagawa actually pulls him out of his cabin to show him the lights, but there's nothing there. And the captain just kind of dismisses him as a fool chasing after marine spirits. Yeah, this captain's a real dick. Yeah. Like, <laughs> utterly horrible person. Yeah. Really. <laughs> and a coward to boot. But yeah. We'll get to right. that. Yeah. <laughs> but Yanagawa continues to look and sees a ship with green and red lights. And it appears to be closing really fast. And he speculates that it might have been a pirate ship trying to lure them with a false distress signal even though piracy has been on the decline. The crescent moon ignoring the signal and continues, but the ship is still gaining, and it shoots up a searchlight, flooding the area with light, and he realizes that it's the same mystery ship he saw in port before, the Sea Snake. The Sea Snake. Yes. There is a reef below them, making it ideal for piracy conditions, as the depths aren't too great, so the pirates can just easily pull whatever treasure and goodies fall off the ship onto the bottom without too much trouble. So the ship is now approaching rapidly, greatly alarming the captain and its crew, and it's on a ramming course, and it smashes right through its side, causing total chaos and panic, and the crescent moon begins to sink. Yanagawa finds Haraway and Hideo, and as first-class passengers, they should technically get the first round of lifeboats, but any sense of order as this chaos is on board just goes right out the window, so it's every man for himself, and even the captain disgracefully takes one of the lifeboats and leaves, and Yanaga was just totally disgusted at this. There's no lifeboats left, and the situation looks really dire. However, they see a couple buoys attached to the ship, and they are able to grab hold of one as it sinks. Haraway appears lost in the confusion and chaos of the sinking ship, which goes under rapidly, and Yanaga was able to find a nearby lifeboat and bring Hideo on board. And Hideo is crying for Haraway, who Yanagawa believes has been drowned and their own situation looks poor as they're adrift. They're hoping to get caught in the currents pulling them towards land. They might be spotted in a sea lane, but they're fortunately caught in a tropical downpour, which collects a great deal of fresh water on board that prevents them from dying of thirst, but there's no food on board, so the clock is ticking regardless. As the hunger pangs set in, Hideo spots a large fish, a shark, and a shark school is pursuing some other fish, one of which a mackerel jumps into their boat. And they resist the temptation to immediately eat it and instead use it for fishing bait using a metal hook that the boat attaches to the main ship for a fishing line. 
the shark takes the bait, and after an intense three-hour fight, they get it on board, and it takes up half the lightboat space-wise. It doesn't taste particularly good, but it provides nourishment for a little while, and on the fifth day, it starts to rot. So they just dump it overboard, and again, are without food. And as things are starting to look pretty bad for them, they sight an island about three miles off. So Yanagawa jumps in to push the boat ashore as Hideo rose, and after an exhausting six hours, they finally make it. Yanagawa's near dead from exhaustion, but fruits are growing nearby, which they eat without hesitation, and start to survey the island, worrying about hostile natives as they have no idea where they are. Yanagawa's dozing off, and Hideo is fishing in a stream when he starts screaming that there's a savage beast nearby, and they see this huge gorilla, angry and charging, and it's about to leap at them when gunshots ring out, and it's killed. Two men emerge, and one is none other than the Captain Sakuragi, who tells them that their landing is remarkable, as the yeah. nearest island is the Madagascar archipelago, about a thousand miles away. So good luck for them. And it's remarkable that it's him they met. Yeah, right, exactly. That's <laughs> the first of many, many, many series of conveniences in this book, which, uh, you know, are very trite, and I don't know, it. this could have been done a lot better i think but it is written for kids and it is what it is and i did kind of have fun with this because of how fast-paced it is i mean yeah. it really flies by super quick even if it is kind of so, silly yeah. everything up to this point i thought was pretty good i mean i i still wasn't that into the translation yeah but i, I was willing to go where it was going to take me yeah but i think i think it's around this point that i just kind of went oh all right so yeah. it's going to be like this now <laughs> yeah and it was like it wasn't it didn't it didn't bring any surprises really after no this it point. didn't yeah so yeah. yeah yeah so we're on the island and the captain takes him to their camp which is primitive but functional and all his men love how cute hideo is so it's good that they get along yeah that's the they use that adjective like every time yeah right <laughs> probably probably several dozen times that is how hideo is yeah. described yeah, and it makes me wonder if the prose is as repetitive in the original as it is yeah. in the translation, but who, who knows, really. The next morning, Yanagawa basically relates his tale and how they got there, and Sakuragi says it sounds like fiction, but he's moved by Haraway's actions, and he knew her brother and had seen her many times. He uses the fact that it sounds like a novel, too, like yeah. so many times. <laughs> the first time it was kind of funny, but then yeah. after that, like, we've heard that already. Yeah, exactly. You already used that metaphor. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but the captain doesn't believe that Haraway is dead and believes in some unforeseen power in heaven that a beautiful woman like her will receive extraordinary help even in the face of death. The captain declares the pirate ship that attacked them is just totally despicable and they must be destroyed. So Hideo jumps up and says he's going to fight against the enemy admiral and everybody thinks he's so cute and all that. And the captain takes the ill omens that Yanagawa related seriously, despite the fact that none of his crew seemed to. There's been some rumors that the pirates are acting in consort with some powerful nation, and one of the crewmen, Takamura Shinpachiro, swears revenge if the pirate ship still lives. The captain asks Yanagawa what he wants to do now, and he leaves his fate to the captain and apologizes for inconveniencing them. And the captain says, no trouble at all, and apologizes back, saying that it's a shame he has to be thousands of miles from Japan on some island in the middle of nowhere. 
Takamura makes light of the situation and tells Hideo lots of fun stuff to do on the island, and he's kind of like the comedic relief character for the rest of the novel. The next day, the captain and many of the men leave on some mission before they wake, and the cook tells them not to venture far out into the island as there are lots of poisonous snakes and deadly wildlife. They want to relax, so no problems there. Takamura announces later that they're hunting a lion, and they bring this dog named Lightning to assist. Yanagawa spends a great deal of time translating works on navigation into Japanese since he's so extensively traveled through America and Europe, he's picked up a fair amount of the European languages and is able to translate the, I guess, state-of-the-art works on navigation, maritime technology, and so forth into Japanese. Later, the captain lets him in on a secret, saying that this is a secret base known only to the Japanese military, where they're constructing an earth-shaking military invention. And he swears not to tell anyone, especially any foreigners, and the captain leads him to a huge cave system where he sees an inscription above a gate that is the shipyard. It actually says that on the gate. Yeah, right. And it's a secret ship. <laughs> As if they wouldn't know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just just so you know, it's not the regular shipyard. Yeah, right. This is the one that's secret. Yeah. <laughs> it's right here on the gate. Yeah. But there's a massive cave site chiseled out, and it contains a dock, a derrick, a foundry, and a great deal of machinery. So they're pretty well set up here on this island. Yeah, some nice nice tech description here. Yeah, definitely. That like that sort of thing. Yeah. It's it's here for sure. Yeah. It's not quite as focused as Vern, but no, that might not. also be down to translation. So. Yeah, exactly. But same kind of ideas, you know, the secret base where they're able to build this ship in seclusion away from all the world's great powers. And they have a pretty self-sufficient operation going, producing all the materials they need. And he points to a most unusual hall, saying it's his secret construction of the undersea warship. And Yanagawa believes this will allow Japan to finally take its place among the great powers of the world. And he doesn't want to describe it in too much detail as not to give away its important secrets, but be assured it has very thick, sturdy armor, capable of resisting any torpedo and missile, as well as new sophisticated weapons, including a ram that resembles a giant drill, easily able to bore through the side of ships, and a parallel rotating torpedo gun, on each side, capable of firing 78 torpedoes per minute. So, really quite a rapid rate of fire here on the artillery. Yeah. There's some incredibly precise sensory equipment that can gauge the tides and the depths of the ocean floor to further aid the ship's maneuverability in battle. You obviously don't want to crash into the bottom of the ocean when you're fighting with ships. And it's also powered by a novel power source from a chemical that Sakaguri had previously worked on 30 times stronger than normal electrical power. So it's not a chemical, it's 12 chemicals. Yes, right. That I thought was going to be some kind of really special MacGuffin. Yeah. <laughs> like, now we have to go on a quest for the 12 chemicals. Yeah, and in a way it's we... It's like such a random number, yeah. too. 12. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's really important. Yeah. They need 12 barrels of specific chemicals to make this thing work. Yeah. And they're never going to tell us what it is because right. it's a secret, right? Yeah, right, right. And, <laughs> and at some point later, they have to to get them. Yeah. But it's not really gone into. They just get them. Yeah, right. Like, okay, so but, we have our 12 barrels now. <laughs> yeah, and it's much stronger than normal electrical power, which in this time, 1900, had progressed quite a ways from when Jules Verne was writing more than yeah. 30 years prior. So it's kind of interesting how that technology progressed quite a bit in that time. Contemporary subs in this time could dive to about five to six feet and stay under for an hour 
whereas this undersea warship can do roughly 30 to 50 feet down and stay below for about 20 hours due to its advanced air processing system. So still a lot less than the Nautilus. No, but yeah, that's much a purely yeah purely fictional ship, I suppose. That yeah, like it could pretty much go to the bottom. Yeah. 22,000 atmospheres was a oh, bit too yeah. much for it. But... Huge amount of pressure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> this ship, however, can go a max speed of 107 knots, which is way faster than the Nautilus can go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> which is actually kind of funny because it reminds me of like the the speed gap where yeah. like H.G. Wells, like we brought, I brought this up before, but in one of his most like weird futuristic stories, he really underestimates how fast aircraft will go. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it just seems interesting. It's one of these interesting things that maybe by 1900, people were starting to kind of click to a little bit, just how much speed could be provided by these engines. Yeah. It's pretty interesting to think about actually. Yeah, definitely. Because yeah. And appropriately enough, the ship's called the lightning. And they're going to be testing it in two years' time from now, around February 11th, or Empire Day, named after the ascension date of the first emperor of Japan in 660 BC. And it's lightning taken from the verse, Lightning Slashes the Spring Wind, from a Yamaoka Teshu poem, who was a famous samurai that played an instrumental role in the Meiji Restoration. So when he gets back to camp, Hideo is a bit upset that they were gone without telling him, but soon forgets and goes playing with Lightning the dog. The dog and the ship are named the same thing. I kind of wonder again. Yeah, yeah, I kind of (laughs) wonder again if it's the same word in the original or if that's just a translation issue. Hmm. But yeah, Yanagawa begins writing this book, this very book, and he gets to chapter three by nightfall. So not quite the Proustian meta tale (laughs) that some (laughs) other people were doing around the same time, but. An interesting touch regardless. Uh, Close enough. Yeah. Right? (laughs) (laughs) So later, Yanagawa goes to the captain and volunteers for some kind of service to help them. And the captain refuses and says that they are their honored guests and they are not in short need of resources. And it's suggested instead that he help construct a monument tower to fly the rising sun, claiming the island for Japan. Yeah, this part was almost, it was so weird. It was yeah. like, he was saying, no, I don't really need your help. You're my yeah. guest. Yeah. And and it was like, and then he sort of manipulated Yanagawa into saying something. And the whole thing about the monument tower came up. And he yeah. was sort of, oh, I was hoping you would. Yeah, I was right. hoping you would volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, he really did need his services, yeah. but he was just too polite to say so. Right. Like, right. it's so almost stereotypically like what people think of when they think of ancient Japanese rituals and stuff like that, how to navigate these sorts of situations. Yeah. Yeah. This, all this politeness and stuff. And so it's kind of odd to me, but it was, it was sort of fun, I guess. Yeah, definitely. So I'm I'm thinking of good things to say about this book because it is hard (laughs) sometimes, but there are some, this is a very odd scene in general and it it gets a little (laughs) strange here. So Takamura says to avoid the natural dangers of animals, that they erect the tower on shore and then bring it up to the mountain. That way they can raise it, and it'll make an unambiguous statement that it's a Japanese island. Yeah, they've selected the perfect spot to put it on, and it's here that I realized the island was like a hell of a lot bigger than what I first thought. Right, right. So I, I Which guess I guess could account, because I was already wondering, how how did like all these lions get on the yeah. island? Like a, <laughs> right. 
I don't really understand that. And I guess I still don't, but I guess... Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a thousand miles away from Madagascar. I mean, it doesn't really seem like the place where things would naturally evolve into cat form, but uh, who, yeah, who knows? Yeah, I mean, it's described as a desert at first, yeah. but then the more they go into the island, the less it actually seems like a desert, and the more right. it seems like a jungle. Yeah, certainly thick jungle. And, like, yeah. I don't know, it's, it's very weird. I felt like maybe he didn't, he didn't really envisage this properly. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? There's also the digression about baseball. Did we skip that? Because I, I want to talk about that. No, we, that's coming up. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Takamura says to get there unharmed, what they're going to do is they're going to build an automatic iron cage car, which oh, right. is okay, yeah. 22 feet long and 13 feet wide and kind of looks like a cow. So he has this elaborate system of gears and pistons using a 440 horsepower engine that can take it through all different kinds of terrains, although not very quickly. To clear the jungle, it has four circular saws, and it can be crewed by five men. So Yanagawa volunteers to lead the project building it. The captain had designed the plans for it, but was too busy with the undersea warship's construction to actually build it. Hideo offers to help too, and the captain offers to be responsible for his education later in life, as he wants to be a naval officer. So three years pass, and we get a time skip. The iron car is done, and the undersea warship is 99.9% done. They have plenty of time for leisurely activities on the island in the three years that have passed. Hunting, sports, boat racing were all popular before a typhoon destroyed one of their boats. So baseball was taken up as a popular choice. Hmm. And Takamura is quite the pitcher. And Yanagawa is amusing about Japan being the world champions of baseball. And this most certainly mirrors the author's own opinions given his... yeah personal familiarity with the game and his brother's deep involvement with it right and i always knew that baseball was popular in japan early on yeah i was talking about this with a friend this week and and we were saying like yeah i didn't i didn't really know that it was that popular in 1900 but i guess oshikawa was actually one of the the proponents of the sport yeah yeah him and his brother yeah yeah it's pretty interesting for sure it, it definitely is odd ties here and there of things pop up where you wouldn't necessarily expect them. Yeah. So now that three years are passed and our heroes have built the iron car and the undersea warship, they take the monument made out of marble and they start the two-day journey to the mountain at six in the morning. When they reach the mountain, the car is attacked by beast, but they are easily able to repel them. One tiger is shredded by the blades that are meant to clear the forest and a gorilla tries to shake their cage but they just spear it off the wildlife acts really weird yeah uh, yeah like i mean granted they haven't experience with humans i suppose yeah. so they might not be like they might not be as timid but on the other hand they would be timid at first because they wouldn't know what was coming at them so they wouldn't like they certainly wouldn't form packs and start no. jumping at the thing. Like, yeah, it's... it's like they're sieging them as like an invading horde or whatever. Yeah, it, yeah. it feels like it's you're so... in one of those Patrick Troughton Doctor Who episodes where there's you know, the base <laughs> under siege and they just keep coming and coming. And I don't think gorillas would work in tandem with tigers and lions. To... No, and the lions and tigers wouldn't work like yeah. together like that. Yeah, right. and, and it's almost, they're the savage natives. Yeah. And they're like, huh, there's some strange... A strange animal come up among yeah, us. We right. must find out what it is. Yeah. <laughs> and then they all get together. And it, it's very strange. Yeah. Yeah. 
So when they're getting to actually erecting the tower, they use bombs to blow up all the animals, which yeah. it seems really excessive, but I, I guess <laughs> <laughs> whatever works. Well, the animals are really persistent. They're yeah, holding them under so. siege. Right. Like, yeah. What, what the hell are they going to do? Yeah. So they get the tower up in 15 minutes, and as they're going back, they're charged by lions, and Takamura is almost injured by one of them as it tears his shoe off, so he got up easy, but one of the other sailors spears the lion. Since they're finished way ahead of schedule, they decide to have some fun and explore the island a little more, but they get stuck in a quicksand sinkhole, and they have a horde of angry gorillas now surrounding them that they can't move. So then we say goodbye to the steam man of the prairies right then and there. (laughs) Or the the steam axe-swinging jungle-clearing iron adventure car of the desert jungle. Yeah. Whatever it is. <laughs> it was like, it was such a nice creation. I liked the circular saws and the axes, like the rotating axes. Yeah. Those are a really nice touch, but we didn't get to spend a lot of time with the Iron Adventure car, which is usually written out like that with an exclamation mark, yeah. by the way. <laughs> this is the chapter is called The Iron Adventure Car. Right. <laughs> and what an adventure it is. Yeah. <laughs> The packs of lions. Yeah, and gorillas. So now all the angry gorillas and animals are around them, and they decide to send for help using Lightning the dog. And the captain is 70 miles away, and it's a dangerous route, but they can trust Lightning. So they write a note attached to him asking for his rescue. Yeah, he's a homing pigeon now. Yeah, right. (laughs) And they make sure to tell the captain not to come if it's too dangerous, as the mission of building the undersea warship is of utmost importance. And they ready lightning and send him on his way, and he's able to fight off some lions <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. make it the 70 miles to the captain, you know, going That's in the some right dog. direction. And yeah, it, it really is. I mean, the Faulkner story, the bear, he just fights one bear. This dog fights off a whole pack of lions. Yeah. <laughs> Takamura is very remorseful about their situation, and they begin the waiting process. Food is getting low and they're losing hope, but they hear gunshots and see a balloon coming in and they're rescued just fine. Lightning's okay. Yeah. He returns with a lot of wounds and is covered in it's blood. It's nice to see a return of balloons. Exactly, yeah. I haven't seen a balloon since the Angel of the Revolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the captain jests to them that their punishment is that they get the unfurnished rooms on the undersea warship, so he's in good humor still. They're able to launch it on yeah. schedule for Empire Day, so they launch it to great fanfare. And later they hear this huge roar, and they realize that there's a tsunami approaching that's going to strike the island. They're able to get to safety, but Yanagawa's concerned for the warship, which is just fine as presumably you can just dive under the ocean. Yeah, I don't know. I I thought that they lost the warship at first, but then it turned out they didn't. I'm not sure the way it was written wasn't clear exactly. It was just the warehouse with the 12 magic chemicals. Right. That got destroyed, yeah. but the warship was fine. Yeah. But at first, Yanagawa didn't know that, and yeah. I'm not quite clear how he... I guess I guess the warship showed up. Yeah, right. Somebody exactly. was piloting it. Yeah, I mean, presumably it dove yeah. under, and he couldn't see what happened to it, and then after, afterwards, it was able to surface and, and come back. But yeah, so the shipyard gets totally flooded out, and the barrels of the magic chemicals are gone, and now they don't know what to do, because without the magic barrels... They're shipwrecked, and they can't risk running out of fuel at sea and having this secret warship fall into enemy or pirate hands. Thankfully, they're not quite shipwrecked, though, because they have balloons! Right. They have some balloons, 
And the plan is to now fly the balloon they took earlier to India or somewhere else on the continent, purchase the required chemicals, and then ship them to Cameron Island, which is the closest island the warship can reach with its current fuel level. So Yanagawa volunteers, and the captain hoped he would because of his language skills. Takamura decides to go with them, and they begin the prep and planning for takeoff. A bit of a somber scene upon their departure, but they are off in the air, and three days later they arrive at the shores of the Indian subcontinent and intend to land at Colombo in Sri Lanka. However, they are blown off course by winds, which transform into a typhoon and knock and blow the balloon around back and forth. A few days later, the wind calms, but they have no idea where they are, and time is critical because they might miss their opportunity to meet up at Canran. But they spot a white patrol ship down below and decide to ask for help to get onto the continent. But as they try to signal, the balloon is attacked by a flock of aggressive birds who, I guess, do that for some reason? I Yeah. I, uh, yeah. They don't like those balloons. I, I, those I balloons, guess not. The birds are the other... Huh, there's a strange animal amidst us now. Right, exactly. Let's, let's, we should find out what this is yeah. and kill it. Because that's what animals do. Right, right. right. <laughs> so they shred the balloon into ribbons, and they cause them to crash on the ocean. But fortunately for them, patrol ship is Japanese, so they're easily rescued and treated well. A Lieutenant Whiskers on board asks Takamura if he's a sailor of Captain Sakuragi, and he says that he's indeed with him, and Whiskers says that they are under Captain Matsushima of the warship Sunrise, who just happens to be Haraway's brother. Yeah, so did you notice that a couple of times the captain was called Whiskers, too? Yeah, yeah. I noticed that. Yeah, I had to read some <laughs> of these passages a couple of times. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, a lot of very convenient situations here. Matsushima is aware of the warship project, so they fill him in on the situation, and he agrees to help and diverts the ship's course to Colombo full speed ahead. Yanagawa's surprised that there's two civilians on board, and wouldn't you know, it's Haraway and Hamajima. And everybody's elated that Hideo is alive and well, and they say maybe it was for the better that he got the upbringing on the island that he did. Yeah. Haraway relates how she survived the sinking of the crescent moon. She clung to one of the buoys on the ship until she was rescued by a mailboat. Hideo, however, was thought dead, and they named the warship Sunrise in his memory. He no day in Japanese. All seems right in the world, and now that the Japanese have built the warship Sunrise, Hideo's alive, but the undersea warship is built. Haraway relates to them that Annie was obsessed with the Day of the Devil and became a nun as a form of repentance. She said her son had been taken by a sea snake, and Haraway thought that this was a figure of speech, but before long, she realized that she had meant that he had become a sailor on the pirate ship that had sunk them. Before the crescent moon is sunk, he got drunk and told her that he'll give her some of the riches, and she's just totally horrified, and Annie feels responsible for the disaster that happened. And now everyone on board wants to destroy these pirates. Yanagawa and Takamura fill them in on their island adventures, much to everyone's delight. Takamura plays a little bit of the Biwa, and best whiskers at arm wrestling, as well as everybody else on the ship at leg wrestling, and also is a really good rower. Mm -hmm. So the sunrise arrives in Colombo on time. They get the chemicals they need and are on their way to rendezvous with the undersea warship. However, when they get near the island, they see seven ships led by the sea snake. The pirates signal that they want to steal their warship, 
and Takamura wants to load the mortars, but technically can't because he's not a sailor on that ship, and that would violate some principles of duty. The pirates charge them and start firing, and the captain unsheaths his sword and goes to the control deck to start the battle. So there's a great deal of firing back and forth. Takamura and Yanagawa help load the munitions and the powder, whereas Haraway tends to the wounded sailors. The battle rages for hours, and the Sunrise is able to evade the pirates' rammings, and off in the distance, they see the undersea warship approaching. They see it dive below the waves, and hear a huge crash. One pirate ship sinks after another. And the pirate ships scatter. The lesser ships are easily destroyed, with only one remaining, the Sea Snake. The Sea Snake tries to evade under cover of smoke, but the undersea warship easily chases it down, pursues it, and rips right through it with its ram, causing it to sink. Everyone cheers, and there's a brief epilogue that they will soon be hearing in the newspapers of the sunrise and of the lightning, and three cheers for the Empire of Japan. Banzai! Yeah. <laughs> Banzai! Yeah, so that's where yeah. the novel leaves us off. There are five more in series not translated to English. Presumably, going forward, the lightning goes around the world and gets in adventures and does cool stuff. But right now, we have no way of knowing. So that is the tale of island adventure. Yeah. Well, the first half was pretty good. Yeah. I'll and give it that. I read this after the Vern and where the Vern really sagged for me, I appreciated the quick pace of this. I mean, I was able to tear through this really quickly. I wouldn't call it a good novel, but I had fun with it. I mean, I thought the ending battle of the pirates was pretty cool. The stuff on the island was pretty silly and there's lots of cutesy stuff and the, the translation is I don't know. I I don't know if it's the best translation. It definitely feels like it is certainly not a it was really one. bad at times. Yeah. I'm not going to beat around the bush. <laughs> it was at times like it was way too like contemporary. Yeah. You know, 80, 1980s and beyond. Right, right. At times it was like the person translating almost, uh, I kind of wondered if they were even taking the piss just a little bit. Yeah. I don't know. It's just like maybe, I mean, I'm I'm sure as it is a juvenile book, like it was probably written quite simply and stuff in the right. original, but yeah, I don't know. It would be interesting, I guess, to find out what the original Japanese is actually like from a stylistic point of view. Right, I agree. Like even just learning basic Japanese wouldn't be enough to really be no. able to tell that. No, unfortunately not. So, you know, I just, uh, but I just don't know. And it's just so frustrating with these works that it's just such a huge unknown for English speakers because some of these early Japanese works do sound pretty cool. Yeah. 
I mean, the titles are cool anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And even if the rest of the five novels are just silly juvenile adventures, it'd be cool to have them for posterity, I think. For sure, yeah. It does seem like they are the beginning of a tradition. I mean, yeah. by the 1950s, you had so many Japanese science fiction films, and I assume there were some probable literary antecedents as well. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. So, I mean... Let's talk about that for a bit, because I don't think there's too much to say about the themes of the novel itself, which pretty much just beats you on the head from start to finish with yeah. Japanese nationalism. <laughs> so there was a film made, I would say out of this, but not really, in 1963. The U.S. title is Atragon. It's a Toho production set in the then present day of 1963, and it's based on this kind of, as well as another novel called The Undersea Kingdom, by Shigeru Komosuzaki, which was serialized in 1954 and 1955. And he had previously illustrated a reprint of Undersea Warship in 1952 and 1953, and worked on creature and ship design for the film. So I think the Undersea Warship novels really stuck in his mind, probably reading them as a kid. And mm. he probably grew up with them in the same way that a lot of People in the West grew up with Jules Verne or something like that and wanted to do something similar with his own novel and assisted on the film. So the film is really quite different from the book. After World War II, Japan has been totally demilitarized and the Constitution prevents war. However, it is still maintaining the Navy element, but it puts a much different spin on it. So the Navy captain who's gone rogue in the film, much like in the book, Building the Warship in Secret, is still fighting World War II on his own. Japanese imperialism here seems to be much more of an outdated leftover from a primitive society. And the captain is portrayed here, instead of being this idealistic Japanese hero, is rather portrayed as being a stubborn warmonger who only mm, wants Atragon to serve Japan. And one character says to him, you are a ghost wearing a rusty armor called patriotism, which is a line you would never see in this book. There are no lines as good as that anywhere yeah. in this book, at least. Right. Yeah. That I, I, yeah. No. But <laughs> wow. in addition to this kind of vague similarities of the Navy captain going rogue and building a undersea sub, which more or less functions and looks like the same ship from here with a huge drill on the front and stuff, we also get the elements from the other novel, The Undersea Kingdom, where there's this whole subplot of a sunken empire of Mu who discovers the plans of the uh. undersea warship called Atragon, and they basically threaten humanity, saying, you need to destroy this ship or else we're going to blow up everything. And <laughs> wow. they, they, they work to defeat the empire of Mu, and we get some monsters because this is a monster movie. The studio insisted on there being a monster in this and the, the monster is pretty cool. It's like the sea serpent thing, and it blows up a bunch of stuff. This movie sounds way more awesome than the book. I'm sorry. It is. Yeah. I had a lot of fun with the movie. I, I had fun with the book, too. But the movie is cool. And if you like 60s Japanese monster movies, this one definitely delivers. Wicked. Yeah, I didn't get around to watching that one. So yeah. sometimes, I mean, we do have adaptations. And sometimes I say to Nate, hey, there's this one, and it's good. And, like, we don't always watch the same thing. So, yeah. like... When we did the Journey to the Center of the Earth one, I remember talking a lot about yeah. the 50s adaptation and right. how good I thought it was. Yeah. And yeah, I probably should have 
given a Tragon or Atragon a try. Yeah. I mean, there's not much of the novel in this. I mean, it's hard to say what happens in the other five works if more elements from that happen in the film, but certainly very, very few elements from this one appear in the book. Just really the rough sketch of the Navy captain going rogue. But I mean, they don't have any scenes of the Atragon, which are they're, they're calling it. I don't know where they got the word Atragon from. It's not the Japanese title for it. It's what was given to the film in the American distribution, but they refer to the ship in the American subtitles, and I'm assuming the dub anyway, as Atragon. So it's more or less completed when the film starts. Okay. Whereas throughout the course of the novel, they're pretty much in the course of building it and getting it ready for... The only thing it really does in the novel is blow up the pirates at the very end. Yeah, I mean, obviously it will be a great use to the Empire. Yeah, right. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I, I wasn't quite sure whether to think that Sakuragi had gone rogue and whether he was doing all this, like, totally in secret. Like, it, it I guess it seemed that way. Yeah, no, he was, he was de- in definitely the Japanese doing newspaper it. and everything. Yeah, I mean, he was definitely doing it on, like, secret instructions from uh, whatever naval So boss. he did yeah. get instructions. I, in the novel, yeah, but in, in the film, it's definitely portrayed as, like, a... Uh, a more he, of a rogue he, operative. He, right still fighting yeah. the war on his own despite okay. the fact that the world has moved on in the last 20 years yeah i mean i didn't think that was made clear in the novel whether he was just doing this by himself yeah because yeah he was mentioned in the newspaper as being like missing or something right and right like it, it it seemed like if they couldn't do what they needed to do they'd be doomed like if they were yeah. under the protection of the japanese navy you would think there would be more of a presence or more of a chance of calling for help right or something but it's just not there but then at the end it's like i guess the japanese navy just sort of accepts that their captain is back with a new ship yeah and like they just welcome that level of ingenuity in the navy i guess at that point in time in in japan yeah (laughs) they're they're like well we don't know where you've been for the last five years but that ship is awesome we love the drill Please, please, you don't have to sell this to us because you're an honorable Japanese citizen. And yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they also did another adaptation in the 90s that was animated. And I didn't watch the entire thing there. But again, it seems like a different take on the novel source material, bringing in more of the fantastic elements and stuff like that. Huh. But yeah, those two are out there. Certainly worth checking out, and you know, the book was okay. I wouldn't really expect too much from it, but it's certainly an interesting look at the society at the time, and really, unfortunately, one of the few lenses we have into Japanese science fiction of the time period. Yeah, I think I just resent slightly that I thought that it was going to be a different book than it was. Like, yeah. The first half I, I genuinely enjoyed, and yeah. I told my friend, like, hey, I'm liking this book so far. Yeah, because I'd been complaining about the Vern and how long it was getting <laughs> right. through it. Yeah, and, and and in the end, like I said, in that part of the episode, I really liked the Vern book. Yeah, yeah. Here is like the opposite. This book was really short, and I thought it was going to be better than it was. Yeah, because the first few chapters hinted at some kind of actual examination of principles and and intellectual concerns. Right. That the second half totally did not. No, absolutely. Fulfill. Yeah, it, it does have some really poetic touches in the first half, and the second half of the novel is really just all silly kid shit. Right. So I think uh, the thing, the funny thing too, is like in the first half, there were certain like it's not like the translation 
suddenly got worse or anything, right, but there right. were, I was ready to be like, okay, so that's just what how they translated it. Like that's fine. Yeah. Right. And yeah. and then as it went went on, it was kind of more like, oh, that's how the book is. Like that's just, I don't know. It my my whole view of it sort of changed. I think as soon as like they were rescued, I thought it was going to be a very different book than it was. I thought there was going to be more of Hideo and Yanagawa on the island like trying to survive right right and maybe dealing with the wildlife yeah and then but they brought the navy people in like almost immediately and almost then immediately, from yeah. that point like there was nothing really yeah. like there was no no tension or drama or any sense of danger or anything like yeah. that they're, they're pretty much invincible the entire time even the ridiculous hordes of animal attacks they're able to repel and you know the dog runs 70 miles and you know okay whatever it fights uh, off the lions yeah right yeah, <laughs> yeah. lightning the dog and yeah lightning the ship right like, uh, right uh, yeah. whatever yeah. yeah yeah i wish i i wish i enjoyed it more like i just i honestly thought like the first half was leading somewhere that it did not go and yeah. it was like it didn't start out like Steam Man of the Prairies, but that's kind of how it ended up. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, I thought this one was overall more enjoyable than Steam Man, but it's certainly on the same caliber of uh, silly writing that doesn't really go anywhere meaningful. No. But, oh, well. Yep. That's this one. <laughs> and unfortunately, we're not going to be able to cover any other works from Japan from this time period. Further down the line, we're going to take a look at some of those works from the 20s and 30s where we find them but i think yeah. it's going to be more of the same case where it's just going to be isolated works here and there that might not necessarily present a full picture of what was going on in japan which does seem to be a fair amount so i don't know hopefully stuff will get translated hopefully we'll be able to do more with it but right now that's kind of where things stand yeah so check it out for historical interest i yep. would say so i guess that's how things stand let's see where things are in the strand 